everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Monica Sager, and I will be your host for the Organization for World Peace's podcast. Today we'll be talking about fake news, especially during the time of coronavirus. And joining us is our in-house political scientist, Andrew Bernstein. Hi. Good afternoon. How are you doing, Monica? Good, thanks. Thank you for joining us. Um, do you want to start by telling us what fake news is and what it's considered to be? Well, yeah, there's a lot of talk about fake news. It's a very common and, and current term in today's political and social world, right? And all this lack of definition and this general use has led to a lot of uh, doubt about whether the correct definition actually complies to the specific situation that we want to talk about today, right? So uh, in terms of academia, fake news is normally defined as false, fabricated, or misleading information that is actually presented as factual or evidence-based. That's a very important part. It presents itself as factual, right? It's real, but it's completely fabricated or it's misleading or it's directly false. In order to explain a little bit more about what fake news constitutes, I think it's important to distinguish between misinformation and disinformation as two key components of fake news. Misinformation is when people unknowingly share news that they believe to be true, but that is actually false and pass it along. Disinformation is actually when people actually fabricate or generate or manipulate the news in order for it to be false and then start spreading it. It's important to say that it's basically spread in order to shape public opinion or to directly make profits from it. So then are conspiracy theories and rumors also considered fake news? Well, there's a lot of debate about it, but in my opinion, they're definitely both uh, parts of fake news. Uh, rumors are unverified and instrumentally relevant information that normally arise in times of anxiety or uncertainty. So that would definitely qualify for what is happening right now in the world. You know, this anxiety, this uh, uncertainty that a pandemic and a disease that is not known generates kind of forces people to spread information and seek for answers and uh, definitely forms part of this, uh, this process of actually sharing news that is not verified or that is directly not correct. And then conspiracy theories are very typical also in these kinds of situations. Uh, basically, there's a counter public group that uh, not dominant, uh, not part of the dominant public that tries to account this fear and anxiety by blaming or the situation on the machination of a group of power. So for example, we've heard a lot of instances about this in these last days where uh, some people say that the virus was fabricated in a lab in China or that it's used as a bioweapon. Uh, a very interesting one is that uh, this has all been created in order to kind of like pass and more easily transition into the 5G era. Okay. So has fake news always existed though? And has it changed throughout time? Well, there's always been false information that has been used by governments and different institutions and, and sources of, of power, no? According to some data, the first reference or the first kind of evidence of fake news in, in terms of not truthful information shared by a government happened in the 13th century before Christ when Ramses the Great, Persian emperor, actually shared false information about a battle and claimed that the Egyptians had gained victory. But in a more modern sense of fake news, about a century ago, the corruption of the press started, and there was this battle between William Randolph Hearst and Pulitzer, right? When this 
source of news or this kind of new form of, of journalism arise, which is called yellow journalism. And it all came from the Yellow Kid, uh, which was a comic publication happening at the end of the 19th century. And basically what happened is that in this competition between these two great uh, or very powerful media moguls, they started competing to attract attention and creating very attention-grabbing and sometimes misleading information. And it is said that it was used in order, for example, to create attraction or support for a war between the United States and Spain for the uh, independence of Cuba. In terms of more recent, like when it's been shaped recently into what we know today as, as fake news, a very important uh, process in this whole situation happened during the time of 2016 election when Trump started deliberately accusing you know, the media of using fake information to try to fight against his pain or his uh, probabilities of reaching the, the presidency. And he was definitely a very important part in this process. But I think that in terms of the academia, it's defined around three key elements or three key uh, events that happened around that, that time. The first one was definitely the important use of social media and how much it has grown over the last years, which is a fundamental tool in order to share fake news or it definitely very much used by a lot of people in, in that sense. The second one was the active strategy of Russia to try to sow division within the United States by using elements that were misleading, false or fabricated to take advantage and therefore erode trust in public institutions in the United States. And the third one was how some elites, political elites have used or made use of this fake information and fake news in order to basically uh, attract support or, or designfully uh, search for uh, or seek to exploit certain situations. Mm -hmm. So I've heard about fake news a lot during the times of coronavirus. Um, what have been the sources of fake news during this pandemic? Right. According to Bell and Cat, which is an investigative uh, journalistic online news site, four have been the sources of the fake news during the pandemic. The first one is what we call generic sources, which are very typical at times of crisis, like natural disasters or terrorist attacks. And they really come from the need for people to like get fast answers in front of uncertain and anxiety situations, right? So for example, uh, it was uh, said at the beginning of the pandemic, several instances or, or videos were shown of people massing and creating huge lines in front of supermarkets in order to hoard food to prepare for the pandemic. But it turns out that these videos were from a different time and, and therefore the, the lack of time matching did not really make them certain. That would be one of the cases. The second one would be whether, you know, sometimes credible sources share uh, false or misleading information, right? Fake news, either knowingly or unknowingly. So for example, unknowingly would be when a reporter or journalist takes some kind of memo from a academic panel and uses it in order to like make a point and then it turns out that that academic panel did not exist or or it wasn't actually uh you know professionally established so that would be the typical example of somebody sharing information unknowingly right and it comes from a credible source because it's a journalist belonging to a, a known institution but there have also been many examples of 
credible sources that have shared false or misleading information to seek for a certain purpose. Like for example, the Chinese government, right, sharing or, or saying that this was created by the United States as a bioweapon, or also there have been many cases where uh, uh, some like President Trump has used uncertain information to basically make a point in his press conferences. The third uh, source of fake news would definitely be the when non-credible sources try to pose themselves as credible sources. And this is quite dangerous as well, which is when somebody who does not have the professional accreditation, right, or qualifications that he poses or he pretends or she pretends to have, and then starts giving information and spreading information as if definitely qualified to share it. This happened, for example, with a doctor in the United States called Dr. Shiba, who pretended to be an MIT board director and actually did not belong in that institution, but he was interviewed by a number of news sources and, and, and he was adamant in, in spreading a number of fake uh, arguments, right? And the fourth one would be that the people who just definitely want to profit directly from the lack of information from the inconsistency that is natural or typical of a situation like a pandemic. And this would be people who, for example, have been selling ailments, medicine as cures for the, for the disease. And then obviously this is very dangerous as well because you know, it might lead to all kinds of, of people getting infected or, or you know, like secondary effects from, from the use of these false ailments. Mm -hmm. But why is the pandemic such a perfect storm for all this fake news to happen now? Well, there are studies, Monica, that say that fake news tends to increase or tends to be more easily spread when there are situations of fear or anxiety or uncertainty, right? And in a situation like the COVID-19, like a pandemic where a new virus, which is completely unknown, hasn't been tested, and there are no references or consistent sources, credible sources that can give information about it, make people rush to find explanations and answers so that they can cope with these emotions. Therefore, it is very typical for people to go to their political elites to try to find fast answers. And these political elites might be trying to exploit the opportunities given by a situation like this whether they're in opposition or they want to erode the trust in, in institutions, they might try to exploit the opportunities that arise during a time of uncertainty like the pandemic. What makes people believe in this fake news though? Um, is it something to do with how they are processing information? Well, that is a fundamental aspect of the way that fake news is spread, right? Everything has to do with the way we process information. Uh, politically, we process information according to uh, psychological studies in two ways. One is what we call directionally motivated reasoning, which is when people try to search for information or they attend their political elites or the media in order to confirm their particular or ideological views of the world. That is to say, they try to seek information or they try to look for information in places where it is actually read or interpreted in the way that they see the world. This is what we call confirmation bias. The same thing happens with this confirmation bias, which is people actually reject news media or uh, sources or political elites that see the world in a different way that they do. A different way to 
actually find information, political information, is what we call one which is based on accuracy goals, which is based on people who look for different perspectives or as many different sources as possible to try to build as complete an image of a particular piece of news as is actually within their reach. However, unfortunately, this actually involves a much higher cognitive uh, effort by most people, and, and the reality is that people are not really willing to do so. So the majority of people actually engage in directly motivated reasoning because, right, it is much easier to go and process information in places where you feel comfortable. What are the motivators? What are the sources? What are the reasons that actually lead people to engage in motivated reasoning, right, directionally motivated reasoning? They're either contextual or they are individual-based. The contextual ones are best based, for example, on uh, variables or issues like effect. When people are very, very keen on a particular issue or on a particular political aspect of, of, of life, they tend to engage in this directly motivated reasoning. Another one, for example, is partisanship. Partisanship definitely leads people to look for information that fits within their partisan view of the world. A third one, for example, would be salience, right? The importance of a particular issue, like for example, COVID-19 during this crisis. In terms of individual reasons or individual ways in which people process information directionally, they normally have to do with political sophistication, that is education and knowledge at the time of uh, looking for information. But there's something which is uh, in a little bit of a, a, a catch here, which would, in general, people would think that people who are less savvy engage in more directly motivated reasoning, but it's the other way around. It is the most savvy and most engaged and polarized political followers who actually engage in directly motivated reasoning because they are better able to actually discern the information that is being shared with them as something which in, with either fits and confirms, confirms their bias or disconfirms it. And then on a broader view, more into journalism itself, how have the changes in journalism affected the spread of fake news? Well, you know, there have been a lot of changes lately in the world of journalism. Again, this whole process with the introduction of fake news is a mainstream concept, right? with a president in the United States that actually constantly undermines the role of the media as the watchdog or tries to blame and sow division, blaming the media for, for not following the news or, or reporting it uh, appropriately. And especially with the uh, great rise of social media, the journalism world defines this whole process as a journalism transition as a world in flux. There's a lot of changes. And these changes are basically, um, in a way, defined by five, five different characteristics. The first one is the, the need for robust fact-checking techniques, right? The whole process of information sharing has spread so fast and has increased its speed at, at such a fast level or pace that it is fundamental that journalists are, are able to you know, establish better, better and, and more secure fact-checking techniques so people can actually go to these fact-checking fact institutions and confirm whether the information is true or not, right? The second one is that journalists are actually expressing concerns over the decreased or endangered role of journalism as a watchdog of the political elites in power, right? The undermining of journalism that is followed in countries like the United States and other countries in, in 
in Europe and also in Latin America, where politicians attack news that doesn't present them uh, favorably, it, in a way, what they're doing is they're, they're undermining the essential role of the media, which is to be the watchdog of power. The third ones are dangers posted to journalistic objectivity, which is the fact that the division that is being sowed and the polarization that is on the rise in the political world really, really kind of has undermined the objectivity with which journalists need to present their news. It means that when journalists, serious journalists, try to be as ethical and as, uh, you know, kind of like source-based as possible, and other people attack them no matter what because they don't follow or they don't fit it within their ideological perspective of the world, then there's no real conversation and no longer can news be presented in an objective manner because objectivity just goes out the window. Nobody cares about objectivity anymore. You just try to follow the news that is going to confirm the way that you see it, no matter whether it's true or not. So journalists are actually expressing a lot of fear, right? And a lot of anxiety about the, the fact that it does not matter, it does not seem to matter anymore whether they're being objective or not. The fourth one would be the speed of fake news and how it spreads through social media, right? The fact is that uh, news spreads so fast, you know, through either automation or, or sharing in the social media that it's almost impossible to go through, to go through the fact techniques that are necessary. And therefore, you know, it is very, very difficult to control the spread. And finally, journalists are also expressing concerns over a potential long-term decrease of the public trust in the media and what that actually would mean for the democratic process that we can no longer trust the media to give proper information, if we can no longer trust facts and evidence to be the source for a you know, proper democratic deliberative process, then the media no longer is going to be an essential part of the democratic process. Now, you mentioned about social media with journalists, but how does the role of social media play in overall the spread of fake news? Well, the role of social media, I would say, is fundamental. No? As we said, uh, the new term, the new definition of fake news revolves almost exclusively around the relationship that exists especially during a pandemic like this one, between the social media, the mainstream media, and the government officials, right? There's a very interesting case uh, that has been published in an article about the covering that was made of the previous possible pandemic that happened during the Ebola crisis in 2014, right? Uh, at that time, Donald Trump was not in, in the presidency. He was just part of the very critical part of society with the presidency of Barack Obama. And he started creating this rhetoric online through Twitter, which was kind of apocalyptic in terms of rising and in, in a way stoking fears and anxiety towards a, a, a possible pandemic of Ebola, right? So what happens is according to academia, there's a counter public which is formed through the social media. This is a group of, of people who actually define themselves as in opposition to the dominant public and to start feeding off and creating a community online where they generate a new narrative that normally goes against or in opposition to the narrative that is being shared by the public, by the general public or by the governmental institutions. Uh, when this news, right, when this narrative kind of hits the big news, when the mainstream uh, news media starts interacting with 
this new narrative and when this new counter public, in a way, it basically legitimizes it. And therefore, this small narrative that started with the counter public starts becoming more and more available and more people get, get uh, access to it. Therefore, you know, kind of spreading the community in a way and making it a little more dominant. And what happens is that uh, social media is, as we say, the perfect place because when people find information that confirms their view of the world and they uh, see it on social media, they are very keen on sharing it and creating and, and, and furthering this counter narrative. So it's very typical to see the fake news spreading at a very fast pace in the social media. All the retweeting or Facebook, for example, likes really help in that process. What happens and what really is very explanative of what is going on right now in the world and with coronavirus is that because of the uncertainty, fear, and anxiety that we talked about before, the problem is that during a pandemic like this one, public officials, uh, public institutions, leading experts uh, like the World Health Organization don't have fast answers and proper answers to a completely new situation that needs proper scientific research in order to provide them. Therefore, they're dealing with the problem as it goes. When this happens, normally public institutions who are the sources of information where people should actually go during a time like this in order to find answers to the problems that they encounter, right, give inconsistent messages because of this uncertainty and fear and because of the completely novel situation. When public officials don't give consistent messages, then they're also paving the way for all kinds of misleading, fabricated information that is going to be used by this counter publics in order to sow division and further their political interests. So that's kind of like the perfect cycle. First of all, there's a counter public which is formed. It's spread, it's spread through the social media, right? It goes very fast. Suddenly it hits the mainstream media. And at the same time, public officials and public institutions are incapable of giving consistent messages due to the uncertainty. And then the whole process kind of feeds off each other. And the other point you made is about how fake news is affecting democracy. What kind of new threats are there that are opposing democracy? Well, I would say that fake news in my personal opinion, is the greatest threat that democracy faces nowadays. In this world of fast-paced information, in this world where people can just, you know, just one click away of actually finding all kinds of information, right? The thing about fake news is that it basically undermines the most important consensuses that build a democratic process or a democracy, right? Democracy is built on a number of institutions right that were created through the consensus of different factions or political groups fake news has the actual power to undermine and to delegitimize these institutions which are at the core of our democratic world right and therefore it challenges things as we said as for example the media's role as a watchdog or it really really undermines proper political deliberation why let's say that you and i have a different point of view right you believe something about the coronavirus and I have the exact opposite view. If we don't trust our public institutions to give a consistent message, if we don't trust the leading experts to give, right, to show and pave the way for action 
in front of a situation like this, then we're not going to share the same com conversation. We're going to have a different frame or a different source of, you know, political debate. If you and I don't share the same facts, if you and I don't agree about what we see and therefore build our conversation upon those facts, therefore, there's no conversation anymore. It doesn't make sense. If you're going to deny whatever I say, despite the fact that we've both seen the same evidence, then there's no real reason to discuss anymore. Therefore, this little by little is going to lead to a further polarization, a further division of society, making important institutions as the judiciary or the media or scientific right, uh, institutions like the World Health Organization completely useless. And they're the ones that we need in situations like this. It's funny to see how Northern European countries like Denmark or, or Finland or even Germany, uh, fake news has not been able to spread as fast. Why? Because over there, these public institutions, these you know, leading experts have a much higher level of trust. So people actually go to them in order to seek definite answers. However, in countries like Spain or the United States or Brazil, where there's high levels of polarization, it does no longer matter what the government institutions say because you're always going to think that these institutions have been politicized and therefore you're going to accuse if, if you're in the opposition, right? The government institutions are not sharing proper information and it's going to go all the way around, you know, in accusations against the opposition. So whenever there's no real trust in the consensuses that we have built as a democratic society, fake news is much more pervasive and it's a kind of a cycle that feeds it of each other because more fake news, more polarization, more polarization, more fake news. Now, we've talked a lot about negatives with fake news. Uh, you did mention the trust that is happening. With Is there a way that we can stop the spread of fake news or at least contain it? Well, I would say that uh, fake news is here to stay, unfortunately. It is going to be almost impossible, if not completely impossible, to erase it to make it disappear you know in this world of massive information and constant fast-paced access to all kinds of sources of information but you know from an academic standpoint there are a number of, of strategies that have been suggested in order to stem the ability of fake news to spread right these are for example strategies of literacy education for example preparing the new generations or, or, you know, the entire population of a specific country to make higher or bigger cognitive efforts in order to process the information, or at least to try to contrast the information when they get it. That is, when you get a piece of information that, you know, feels a little bit strange, even if it confirms the way that you see the world, you know, you should try to make an effort to try to look for different sources or to try to look for that information on newspapers that maybe don't follow within your ideology so that you can get a, a, a bigger uh, sense of the of the general picture. Another one, for example, is like bot control, right? Governments implementing algorithms or, or measures or techniques in order to control fake accounts that are created on, you know, like the social media sites like Twitter or Facebook in order to spread this disinformation. A uh, very important aspect in order to try to stem up fake news is to build real, trusted, fact-checking institutions or sites where people can actually go 
and look at whether this information is true or not, whether it's fact or it's evidence-based. And I think that's a very important fact. Fact Fact-checking is fundamental. However, fact-checking has not worked because in general, it's been read as politicized. There are a number of fact-checking institutions in the United States that are considered to be progressive and biased towards having a liberal agenda. So they're not really useful so far. It would be important to try to generate a consensus around fact-checking sites that might lead people to not believe all the information that they get and look for credible sources, right? And there's also been an effort to try to foster consensus at the elite level. Uh, some studies in, in research show that when you try to foster consensus at the elite level, when different parties, different factions agree upon a number of different facts or different sources of information like science, for example, it is much more likely that people are going to go to these institutions because people on both sides of the aisle or on the different set factions have agreed upon a common source that can give a proper answer to a situation like the one that we're in right now. In order to summarize, I would say that people should try, if they're really interested, to contrast the information, to look for you know, credible sources, right? public institutions, scientific institutions, then they should try to go to fact-checking sites too in order to stop and stem the, the spread of, of fake news. And they, would tr- they should also try to make a, a bigger cognitive effort in the processing of information so that they at least question you know, the veracity of what they're getting at every moment. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew, for taking the time to talk with us again. I definitely learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did too. Well, thanks a lot, Monica. It was my pleasure. Again, I'm Monica Sager, and this is the Organization for World Peace's podcast. Make sure to tune back in for our next edition soon.